I'm Travis Rudzant, Pioneer Rep from Rodney, Ontario, and this is the Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. Thanks, Travis, and thank you for joining us for the third episode of the Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. Over the first couple of episodes, we've covered a lot of agronomy. Today, we're going to take a bit of a turn. We'll still have some real ideas for how to get the most out of your acres, but instead, our focus is going to shift to the overall management of your farm. And to help us with that, we've got two great guests to give us their ideas. The first is a well-known Canadian farmer who has an impressive resume to stand on. Christian Hebert is a managing partner in Hebert Grain Ventures, which runs 22,000 acres in southeast Saskatchewan. His designations include CPA, graduate of the Texas A&M Executive Program for Agricultural Producers, and he's founded both Workhorse Hub and Maverick Ag. He also consults and speaks on a range of topics, including this very one we're about to cover. Christian, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Maybe you can lead things off for us by telling us a bit about your farm. Yeah, we, you know, we enjoy what we do. We get, we get a large crop farm, grow mall barley, yellow peas, hard red spring wheat, a little bit of fall rye, obviously lots of canola, dabbled in hemp and going to put some oats in occasionally. So we just tend to mix things around based on how we can have stuff forward contracted, et cetera. Do a little bit of other stuff too. As you said, we get a consulting company out of Saskatoon called Maverick Ag. That, uh, that's based on my background as a CPA and my partner and my farm CFO runs that, Evan Shout. And we're still, I chair the, chair the board of Global Agris Solutions, a private insurance company. So I spend a fair bit of time talking BRM programming with private companies, the federal government, the provincial government, and in, uh, in areas and discussions I would have never assumed I'd be part of. It sounds like there aren't a whole lot of dull days around your place. Ah, we, we seem to find something to do most days anyway. Well, that's good. So then if we can focus on, for a few minutes, the grain side of your business, Christian, you've obviously had some pretty major growth over the last several years. What kind of farm management strategies do you use that you can give credit to for some of that growth and success? Yeah, so I, I'll start with the most recent one because it's probably had the most impact on our business. A couple of years ago, uh, I read the book called Traction by Gino Wickman, and it, it's a system called EOS. So the entrepreneurial operating system. And I'd, I'd call it a pretty fluid management system for, for smaller companies that are growing fast. And really all it does is get everybody on the same page on, on goals in the book, they call them rocks. So you have to set, set company rocks for the year and, and then rocks for each quarter. And then each individual ends up, you know, having a rock or two that ties to that. But you start having meetings, short meetings every Friday to make sure that you're doing the same things, you know, doing the right things every week in order to hit the rock for each quarter. And it really, you know, I, it really did help our team be, I'd say more concise on, on, on where I wanted to go, which really, let's be honest, I had to define a little better where I wanted to go of which then the team gets even more excited and, and they're great at doing what they do to get to where we want to go. So that that's probably been one of the number one things that we've done and it, and it happened most recently, you know, prior to that, we focused heavily on our team. We, we do personality indexes on anyone that hired that gets hired on the position they're about to work in. Um, I hired a, my operations manager is also what I'd call really, really good at HR. So I hired him pretty early in my career. Cause I realized that 
you know, I'm reasonable at motivating people and, and kind of explaining where we want to go, but not so good at breaking that motivation down into the succinct steps in order to get to where we want to go. And so I, I would say hiring key people that are a lot better at things than I am was has been part of our strategy for a long time. Just breaking that apart then, Christian, when you talk about this EOS, that doesn't come to the top of my mind as something that a lot of farmers are using. I guess I wonder why go after something that doesn't have that agricultural focus or something that a lot of other growers aren't taking? Well, I'll step back once. I've been I've been in a program called Strategic Coach for five or six years, and it's it's a coach like we fly out to Toronto every quarter. It's virtual right now, obviously, and we have a coach. His name's Dan Sullivan, but really, it's a peer group of entrepreneurs. Um, I did I did farm and, and agriculture peer groups, and I have a lot of respect and and for them and had fun at them. But the one thing I found is we still got it caught in a little bit of groupthink. And the way my brain works is I kind of need to get thrown a left hook every now and then just to make me look at situations differently. So I joined Strategic Coach and I just find being in a room full of entrepreneurs. I mean, I've got a guy in my group that uh, runs a manufacturing company in Dubai. Another guy runs a construction company in Chicago. Another guy has a couple of resorts in Mexico. You know, there's some FinTech individuals. And so everybody really, once you get to know them, has the same problems. It's, it's people and cash flow. And how do you work your way through problems, which in, in most cases, if you kind of look at them, right, you can make them into opportunities and get your team to tackle them. And I just found that getting opinions and ideas from people that weren't in agriculture actually triggered my brain um, to do a better job in agriculture versus just only visiting with the people in our industry. So that, to be honest, that's kind of where it came from. Um, Gino Wickman, the guy that wrote EOS is in Strategic Coach. So it gets talked about a lot there. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of sports. And so we always talk on the farm that we run it like a hockey team. And like, there is no president or janitor, et cetera. There's just a bunch of hockey players. And, and yeah, there's a captain and there's some assistants, but their job is just to communicate everything to everybody and make sure we're measuring the right stuff. And I, yeah, it just, just triggered thoughts in my head that this would sure make our life a lot easier. And for, for a couple of months, I think probably my team would say it made it a lot harder, but looking back it. It was a it was an instrumental change in our business. So then EOS is one of your most recent strategies you've used. I know the five percent rule is another you've talked a lot about in the past. Can you touch on it and how it works? Yeah, so the five percent rule was once once again kind of we've always been big believers in in education and and continuous learning. So one of the things I did is went down to Texas AM and took a program called TPAP, the executive program for agriculture producers kind of similar to C team in Canada, slightly different run, but I was always, as I said, I was, I was a fan of Danny Kleinfelter kind of my whole life. Um, and he was the one that put that on. That's where I met him. And he's, you know, he's got kind of seven principles that run TPAP. And one of the main ones was the 5% rule in that, you know, quit looking for a jug of snake oil or, or, you know, some marketer that tells you they're going to double your revenue and double your net income with one little change look for all the little things that you have control over as a manager, right? So when we look at statements, when it comes to labor power machinery, i.e. how much do we have invested in our equipment? How many times are we turning it over? How many hours are we putting on it? Those are all things that, that we have control over. You know, what do we, what do we pay for our inputs? Do we actually check it a couple of places? Have we, have we made two phone calls on fuel? Those are all things that are hundred percent controlled by the manager, um, not mother nature. And so we have, we can manipulate and work on those costs pretty easy. And all the 5% rule says is if you have 
kind of three, five percent changes in different parts of your business, it can actually actually create a hundred percent change in your net income. So those little things really do matter. And that, yeah, as I said, I that kind of created a presentation around that because it was my favorite thing from TPAP when I had to do my first one. Uh, Danny, Danny helped me out with it and people enjoyed it. I think it was just though that it was, it was implementable. Right. And I think looking back now, um, as we've grown, it's pretty neat how it hits home for me. I mean, I'll have a new landlord or possible landlord phone me. And the reason they'll phone is we've kind of moved into a new area and they've watched my crew clean up the grain bags right behind when we, you know, when we put, took the grain out, we didn't leave any of them in the field. And, and the next day they saw someone on my, you know, on my team mowed all the lawns in the, in the yards that we rented and the approaches. And that, that really has nothing to do with me. I, I said, you know, here's what I want things to look like. But my team is the one that executes at that. And, and really the community sees more of my team, you know, out working than they, than they do me. I'm in my office a lot. And it's all kind of tied to that, that 5% rule or what we call now the balance of perfection in logistics. Obviously, in terms of finding that profitability, I can absolutely see cut those things that you have control over. But going into a year like this may be a bit different where given where crop prices are, as long as Mother Nature cooperates, growers could be seeing some pretty big gains in net income. How does a grower manage that and take advantage of a year like this so that they can be better prepared for what we know is going to be the day when grain prices fall out from underneath us? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's a combination of, of education, risk management, and, and which strategies each farm is going to use. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pinpoint any one strategy because every farm kind of needs to find their own their own unique ability and, and how they're going to capture it so I'll just go through some things we you know we looked at one is is when I say education it's around futures and options and the, the number of farms that I meet that don't use them so for instance you know you can lock canola in for $14.50 off the combine $14 somewhere in there uh, and, and maybe three months ago, you could lock it in for 1150, but you, and you thought that was good, but you truly felt it was going to 14. Well, a person that's comfortable with the futures and options market could have started selling grain then in order to lock these profits in and bought back, whether it's futures or options to still hold, hold the value of that grain. You'd still be able to deliver it in September, October, November, when you need some cash, but you could, you could close your futures out when you want to and still capture the 14 or $15. So I think that's an area of education that we all can continue to work on, including me. Um, I think it, it can work great on any crops we grow that have a fluid market. So canola, soybeans, but, but even areas around fuel and uh, crude oil, et cetera, it, it can be a real benefit if we do a better job understanding it. So that's point one. Point two, I would say, when I say risk management, it's really on a year like this, I think we can take a little more risk than normal, but it needs to be calculated. So the interesting thing is, is I've seen a number of, of risk management strategies that are using one or two or three public and private programs where they virtually have their downside risk to zero, to a break even. That to me tells, tells me we can walk up to the plate here and, and really try and hit a home run, not just, not just be okay with a double because we can't really lose any money based on having a great, a great calculated risk strategy. And at the same time, we have commodity prices 20, 30%, you know, above five-year averages. So it really does let you maybe try a few things that you wouldn't normally try um, to, try and, to try and move from that double to a home run and still be able to sleep at night because you know the worst case scenario. So I think that's really important. 
Then third, I think the thing everybody needs to remember is that on a year where there's lots of profit, we tend to see an, an increased investment in machinery and fixed assets, whether it be bins, et cetera. Machinery is the one that mainly worries me uh, for the reason that most machinery is on three or five or seven year loans and, and not many farmers will just sell it in the middle of that. They kind of pay off the loan and then they decide what to do with it. Well, if you really ramp up on a year like this, I'm not saying at current prices that it can't handle those extra costs, but those extra costs are going to stick around for three to seven years. And for some reason, I haven't been able to convince the, the world that crop prices can stay high for three to seven years. They seem a lot more volatile than that. So it's just to remember that lingering bell curve on fixed costs and, and have a plan. Don't, don't ramp up just because you see canola prices high right now. Make sure, make sure it's calculated and you have a plan so that that tail end of those fixed costs in year three, four, and five don't really take back everything you were able to capture this year. I don't know, Christian, that new paint is awfully tempting on a year like this, but I, I do want to wrap up here in a second and bring in our next guest. So maybe you can help us out with this last question. You, you talked about peer groups, farm management clubs a little earlier, as well as some education opportunities. Can you give us a summary or a couple of things that a grower could look at or could implement in the near term that's going to bring some results in the next five or 10 or more years to the farm? Well, I would say, I would say in agriculture, the first thing is most, most of them are family businesses, right? So number one, have a five and a 10 and even a 15 year plan with the two generations. And in most cases, it's fathers and sons, but there's fathers and daughters, there's mothers and sons. So we're just going to call it two generations. Don't, don't believe that it's just going to work out in the end. Don't, have one person in the vineyard and one person in the office, both mad because they're not working on what they want to work on. Sit down and figure out what does each group really enjoy doing? Because that that's honestly how you get the most done in the day, right? If you enjoy doing what you're doing and you're good at it, that increases productivity. So there's no reason that just because it's the older generation that they should be the one doing the books. And if it's the younger generation, they should be the one pulling the wrenches. And I just use that because it tends to be the way it goes. Make sure we get each generation in the roles that they really enjoy doing and they're good at and be pretty open and honest around how profitability is going to change over the 10 years, how labor allocation is going to change over the 10 years. Are we paying land rent on the land we own, which I highly encourage because that's part of mom and dad's retirement in the future. So get used to it. You know, if it's a tough year, it can always be put back in, but get used to it. So I think that's point one uh, that, can, that can really be good for a lot of farmers. My second point would be always look to hire talent and, and team members that are better at things than you are. So I think a lot of issues I do see in agriculture is, you know, they, they hire a lot of 15 to $20 people and then hope they can take their job when really you weren't setting them up for success. Hire people that are way better than you at HR or way better than you at running equipment or, or a heavy duty mechanic or whatever it is that your weakness is hire somebody that can fill that hole for you. It's gonna relieve stress for you. It's gonna make you willing to pay them more money. You're gonna transfer responsibility to them. So it's gonna make them way more comfortable and, and excited about their job versus their job description being, just do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. That'd be my second one. Third one, I think, and probably my last one would be take some time understanding, you know, how the 10 year bond rate affects long-term interest rates on land. And then also how that differentiates from operating capital. 
Um, this one's a little technical, but kind of first step would be try to get your operating line to be backed by operating type items, i.e. your crop, your receivables, your insurance coverage, your canola cash advance, things like that. Have your land debt back your, or have your land debt back, back land purchases and have your equipment only back your equipment debt and then start to look at those three functions of your business and how, how levered they are. And then also what kind of timeframes you're willing to pay them off over. So I see a lot of farms get in trouble cash flow wise because they have too short of terms on their land and their equipment when really there's no reason for that. It just makes you feel better that you paid it off faster. Get it so it works on cash flow because that's what makes the world go around. And don't let a whole bunch of land equity get tied up on your operating line. Those are, those are probably kind of my three main look at for the next 10 year type type sit down talks. Christian, thanks for this. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was fun. So that's a good big picture view, I think, of a few things to think about from a management perspective that I know helped me. I hope it's done the same for you. But as we always like to do here, we want to bring this conversation back locally. To do that, we've got Chris Olback up next. He's an area agronomist for Pioneer covering a big chunk of Southern Ontario. Chris, thanks for joining us. Maybe you can start with a quick snapshot of your role with Pioneer. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to join you. I'm the area agronomist with Pioneer, and I cover the rural routes of uh, southwestern Ontario now, basically from Oxford, Elgin over to Niagara Peninsula. And uh, what I do is I work with the sales reps through that area. There's about 24 of them, and I work with them on uh, the agronomic front to help them bring the best solutions to their customers and really uh, push them in terms of uh, the agronomy they're bringing to their customers. That finding solution, I think, fits really well with what Christian was just talking about. One of the things he talks a lot about is finding a lot of little things as a way to make improvements. He refers to it as the 5% rule. Around a farm, there's obviously a lot of places to look for that, but looking at the customers that you talk with and looking at it from an agronomy lens, what jumps to your mind as a place a farmer can start looking for those little improvements? Yeah, Andrew, th that's really uh, what my job is about, right? Um, you take a look at that 5% rule, and I'm a, I'm a real ad advocate of that concept, right? Um, and the reason for that is you can make small incremental improvements um, across your operation um, in terms of productivity and, uh, and really see a benefit from it, right? And we don't know the upper limit to that. I think the first, the first one we could talk about for sure is, is fertility. Um, I know quite a few uh, of, of my classmates when I left Guelph went different paths and a lot of them went back to the farm, right? And one of the best things I think they can do is start taking a look at their soil tests closely. You know, there's a lot to be learned from them. And, and just like with farm businesses, you know, you wouldn't run your, your farm business without a, you know, an accurate set of financial statements while well, the same can be said for soil tests. And I think that's a great place to start. Then on that soil test side, I'm sure that what you see out there is a pretty wide range from growers that are doing some pretty intense and detailed soil testing to others that maybe are doing a little occasionally and others that might do a bit but not really using that information. With that range in mind, what are some of those key things that we should be looking for from a soil test? The first place I like to look is, is you know, and, and, I, and I do see quite a bit of uh, range in soil tests and, and fertility levels is, you know, what, how is my uh, pH? And, you know, like that, that's kind of the starting place for a lot of the fertility uh, that comes forward from there. So you take a look at it um, and try and correct it. Uh, you know, it's one of the lowest hanging fruit, right? Because a lot of times we find these things, uh, you know, once we get into other nutrients, they, they become co-limiting, right? And um, if your pH isn't corrected either, it'll, it'll change 
the balance, right? Um, so if we can get that corrected, then we can move on to things like phosphorus and potassium, right? And starting to take a look at that, and our base level of fertility there. Now, in terms of starting off with the big things, when you do see tests come back and see variability, do you usually find that means big changes for a farm's fertility plans? You know, that's a great, great point is I, I don't think it's a lot of, uh, you know, I got to put more, a whole bunch more money in this direction or the other, right? A lot of times we can, we can draw back on certain fertility levels and, uh, and see the benefits not only on our farm, but uh, on a broader scale in terms of how we're managing other nutrients, right? Because they are often co-limiting. So you take, you take a look at, um, you know, I might be putting a lot of manure on uh, a certain, certain part of the farm, right? And if I can spread that out over more acres or, or find a, a, a person to deal with on that front, you know, we can start drawing back on how much we need in terms of uh, phosphorus fertility, for example, um, off the farm. So, you know, you start taking a look at those things, you can start fine tuning things pretty quick. And uh, it often, that often leads to, uh, you know, a decrease in how much uh, fertility you're using or have to use. So I see that as maybe a big step one in fertility management is the big picture piece. I wonder, does variable rate then come in to play a part as you start to fine tune your fields? Yeah, I, when I worked out east in eastern Ontario, a lot of times uh, growers started with uh, correcting their lime on uh, on a variable rate uh, script, right? And that that was kind of their base uh, where they started with uh, variable rate fertility. So you know it can work to to correct those things, and then you can build it out into other areas of your farm if you're working on really variable soils. But a lot of times, you know, it, Ontario can range from uh, you know pretty consistent hundred acre lots to uh, some pretty variable. Uh, you know, uh, different sized, uh, farms, right. So you got to take a look at it on a, on a farm by farm basis, and then start looking at acre by acre. If you, if you get to that point. And then the next piece comes to mind, knowing that fertility is obviously a big budget item and the price of fertilizer is not getting cheaper, but the next piece that comes to mind is seed. And in years past, the question we always asked was, do we plant 30,000 seeds an acre on this farm? 33, 36, whatever that number is linking to the variable rate conversation do you think there's room to find some efficiencies with variable rate seeding well certainly i think um once once we've done uh, the best we can do to to get those base line fertility things corrected for our operation i think there's a there's definitely an opportunity in a lot of cases where we can we can start to use the technology that we have right um, to our advantage um, if, if we put a, a little bit of applied knowledge to it right so you take take a look in a lot of cases, it was it was easy in eastern Ontario to see see a benefit um, if we if we were on some some more variable soils where where things get droughty or the topsoil isn't as as deep. We could uh, really draw back um, on how much seed we were placing in that particular area, or uh, or we take a look at multi year uh, over year uh, yield maps and combine combine them, and and we could get some really good insights and maybe on uh, what what might be best to do in terms of. Uh, uh, tweaking the seeding rate a little bit, you know, uh, on some, and, and the, and the reverse applies where we've seen, uh, with our research, uh, some information showing that, um, some ground, we don't, we don't know the upper limits, how, how far we could take, uh, seeding rate. Now I'm not suggesting that we should go <laughs> way off the, off the charts in terms of what we do there. Um, because there's other, other things to keep in, keep in mind as well, uh, in terms of root lodging and other things, uh, stock, stock integrity, but, we can, we can definitely push, uh, uh, push our limits where we have been more conservative uh, and see a benefit too. And, and we've noticed this. 
I want to wrap up here, Chris, and tie both of what you're saying and what Christian was talking about. All of the things we just heard about, in my mind, tie back to information and data, whether that's yield maps, soil tests, prescriptions, whatever it is. And thinking about one of the points Christian talked about in don't just be tempted to go out and buy new equipment when you're really profitable, but instead... Look at the information to find where you can get efficiencies, not just in a year like this, when it's hopefully easier to be profitable, but in a year when things get tight again. So with that information, from an agronomy point of view, what do you wish growers would look closer at because you think the return is right there in front of them? That's a great question, Andrew. Uh, I think when I look at a lot of the operations I've worked with, um, I think one thing that would really ring true is that cost per bushel thinking, right? Um, rather than cost per acre. And, and Christian notes on that a little bit um, in in his work. But you know, if you take a look at the the information we have available to us, be it yield maps or uh, seeding rate uh, maps, um, as applied, uh, we we know more about uh, you know the input costs uh, per acre on on a lot of our ground than we ever have from that information, right? Um, and if we can, if we can collect that as accurately as possible, and, and that might be just as simple as, uh, inputting it, uh, from the cab, um, or taking, uh, the extra time, um, throughout the season to make sure that that data is accurate. Then I think there's going to be some real interesting things that we can learn from that, glean from that going forward in terms of, okay, and now I know my true cost per bushel. Um, and I can, I can learn uh, a tremendous amount on how to make my business better from that. Right. So. That's those, those are the areas I'd focus is just uh, cleaning, cleaning that data up a little bit and uh, having a place where you can work on it and, uh, and make some decisions. I think is great. Chris, this was great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. I hope you picked up at least a couple of tips from Christian and Chris. I certainly know that I love to talk about this management stuff because I think there can just be so much potential when we look closer at the whole farm in an effort to try to be more efficient and more profitable every single year. Now, coming up next time, we're going to continue down this path of finding efficiencies, but look specifically at how technology might be able to help us. After all, we talked a bit about variable rate technologies today, but we know there's a pile more out there. And whether that's in imaging or tech on equipment or in software or in a dozen other areas. So the question we'll ask our guests will be with all these choices in technology out there. How do you decide what's right to invest in next? That's all part of our next show. On behalf of the entire Pioneer team, thank you so much for listening to the Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, we hope you'll recommend us to a friend or rate us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also get in touch on Twitter anytime at PioneerSeedsCA or my handle at Fresh Air Farmer. And for more information or advice, talk to your local Pioneer rep or visit Pioneer.com.